Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 128, and the bell is tolling for Mzilikatsi Kamalo of the Ama Ndebele. We'll also hear about the introduction of maize by hunter-traders in Port Natal, and the relationship between Dingaan and the Portuguese at Delagoa Bay. A compounding problem for Mzilikatsi by now was how he had been treating the indigenous Sutu and Swana-speaking people in the area north of the Vaal. He had assimilated some into his system of control completely, and used others as hole, who were basically domestic and community menials, servants, slaves almost. Others who were overcome by his warriors were assigned to villages of their own, where they herded cattle for him under traditional chiefs, but also under the surveillance of an Amandebele regiment and sometimes one of his wives. There were also those allowed more freedom to pursue their lives autonomously, but paid a tribute. All of this meant they weren't really his blood brothers, which also meant when the Boers rolled onto the felt, the Sutu and Sana viewed them with antipathy, wary but not always as enemies. Mzilikasi had a community of 60,000 people by now, possibly 80,000, say historians, but only a tiny percentage of these were warriors, perhaps 4,000 in total at the apex of his power. Mzilikasi was, in a word, a despot, but a complicated despot. Mzilikasi demanded a strict adherence to Nguni and Kumalo traditions. He preserved the tradition of the Inkwala, the first fruit ceremony, from Zululand, thus uniting his people under him. The ceremony would be held at Egabeni, north of Maseja, and usually conducted in February each year. Maseja, if you followed this series, was now a ruin, flattened by Porhita and Maritz in January 1837 as retribution for Mzilikasi's attacks on the Boers at Fechop and the Val River. Like Dingeswayo of the Mtetwa and Shaka, Mzilikatsi did not allow circumcision. He managed his male population by access to sex and binding them to his Amabuto until they'd proved themselves as warriors. At the top of the Ama and Debeli hierarchy was the king. His word was law. He lifted his finger and there would be an execution. Under him were two levels, the higher called the Umnumzan, as with the Zulu. These were male relatives of the king as well as commoners. They did not usually raid with the MP, though. The kings remained at home with the Mnumzam as a kind of cabinet. The second rank were the Izinduna, with authority over the military regiments and subjects of the districts. Each Induna had subordinate officers. We know about Kalipi, who ruled Moseja and had almost paid for his attacks on the trekkers with his life, but luckily for him he was visiting the king at the time of the January raid. There was Kabalonta, who ruled the land north of Igabeni, and the capital, and Umtkumbati, who ruled the east. If you recall, Umtkumbati had already visited Cape Town and signed the agreement which bound Mzilikatsi to the British in a kind of relationship of sorts. I've dealt in detail with the Ama Ndebele previously, but it's important to explain the leadership structure because a big change was coming. These people were to end up in western Zimbabwe, around Bulawayo, having started their journey in northern Zululand in the early 1820s. While they retained much of their historic origins, they were also changing on the felt, a bit like the Boers. They were not locals in the strict sense, they were invaders, and they used a form of warfare that was alien to the locals, although their weapons were not. Mzilikasi was also extremely nervous about his eastern reaches. 
beyond which the Zulu lay. Everything in their system was predicated on the possibility that the Zulu would come to get them again, and as you're going to hear, that is indeed what Dingaan was planning. Even the layout of the kraals indicated Mzilikatsi's concern for foreign involvements. His marches kept open as a buffer zone. His Amandibeli were Nguni fundamentalists in some ways. The recruits that could prove their ancestry was from the southeast from Zululand, Mzanzi, as they were known. These were the real Amandibeli. This was social stratification at work. All Nguni refugees that were taken in became part of this class, distinguishable by their clan names, and this allowed the Amandibeli to continue their custom of exogamous marriages. It's through this form of family structure that societies protect themselves from intermarriage. Just a quick explanation. Exogamy means intentionally marrying outside your clan, your group, your social unit. Some call it outmarriage. It's been practiced by people in many countries and cultures throughout recorded history. Exogamy protects groups that prioritize kingship, like the Amandabele and the Zulu, so that people are divided for identification purposes. That preserves lineages and reduces birth defects that follow intermarriage. This has ramifications. The kings of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty between 1516 and 1700, for example, frequently married close relatives in such a way that uncle, niece, first cousins and interfamily unions were prevalent in that dynasty. Historians and our geneticists believe that the interbreeding was a cause of the extinction of the dynasty when King Charles II, physically and mentally disabled, died in 1700 without children from his two marriages. Back in Zululand, Mzilikatsi's arch-enemy Dingaan had heard about the Futreka attack at Mosecha and how they had overrun the Amandibeli warriors. How hundreds had died and the Trekkers had used their weapons and the strategy of surprise to deal Mzilikatsi an almost mortal blow. This was to have two implications. One was for Mzilikatsi and the other for Pitratif. Dingaan immediately realized what the implications this great trek may have for him and for his Zulu nation, and when he heard about the manner in which the great Mzilikatsi's warriors had been dispatched, 400 killed, and not one Fortreka casualty in turn, it created fear. The fear for his own survival against these terrifying new people, and that was going to be further accentuated when he heard what happened in November 1837, and that is for our next episode. There's a preconception about these things these days, the mistaken belief that the people facing the Fortrekkers were all in agreement about what to do about this existential threat. But they did not regard the Boers as their greatest danger. For most, the most extreme threats remained their own neighbours, who they'd fought for far longer. Dingaan could have decided then and there to support Mzilikatsi Kamalo, a man from his own territory, in overcoming what appeared to be a brand new threat on the felt, but he didn't. Like previous and in upcoming examples, local competitors thought they'd use this external group as a weapon against each other. But what was Dingaan up to right now, back home in Zululand in mid-1837? Fortunately, we have both Zulu oral tradition and a diary of Henry Francis Finn to peruse. Neither is always reliable, but then again in these days of twisted narratives, what is? At least we can try to unravel what was going on across southern Africa circa March through August 1837. At about this time, Charles Goodyear, by the way, was filing his first rubber patent 
and was to file over 3,600. Number 3,633 is his most famous vulcanized rubber, but that was only in 1844. In 1837, Dingon was plotting while he reclined on his wooden pillow at Mgungunglovu, his great place in northern Zululand. And in June 1837, he sent an impi under Nlela to exploit Mzilikatsi's misfortunes. A man who spoke about this later, Ngidi, said that the Amandebele were ripe for the plucking and had thousands of head of cattle seized by the Zulu. So many that Ngidi claimed they left herds on the felt because... We lacked the men to drive them. That may have been grandiose bragging, but the Amandabeli's own stories confirm how destructive Dingan's June raid was. It was so successful that the Amabongi poets still recite the lines today, and it's remarkable for a number of reasons, not least because the Zulu praise singers inserted a long list of the Izinduna who led Mzilikatsi's regiments and were killed. These men and women who fled Zululand for the Haafel during Shaka's reign had never been forgotten, and their deaths were celebrated by Dingan's poets. In lines 132 to 152 of the Izibongo Zika Dingana, for example, these choice comments. Wadlun Hlanganisu ka Mashubana. He devoured Hlanganisu, born of Mashubana. Wadlun Kanishana ka Mashubana. He devoured Nkanishana, born of Mashubana. He devoured Nokufa among the royal wives. He devoured Gajima among the royal wives at Nsingweni. He devoured Notando among the daughters. At the palaces of Mzilikatsi. He devoured Nozenlwati, Mzilikatsi's princess. By devouring, of course, the poets mean killed. And so it goes, wiping out commanders of the Amandabele, like Dambuza Mtabati and Dumapansi, and Mzilikatsi's own bodyguards, Dadiza and Mdengezi Mashumi. The last name is interesting. Mashumi derives from Amashumi, which means tens. Zulu historians believe that Mdengezi Mashumi was an alias for Mdengezi Ka Kuzwayo, who fought alongside Shaka but then ran off to join Mzilikatsi. Still, the constant reference to Nsingweni was to one of Mzilikatsi's military settlements that Dingan's impis overran. Later in this long recital, these lines are added, Isitlanga Zika Mzilikatsi, all the war shield of Mzilikatsi. Sasal Intabeni in De Yempama was abandoned on the heights of Mpama Mountain. Sesiswele Nendore Isitataio. No man would dare retrieve it. It's remarkable that Dingan feared and loathed Mzilikatsi so much that he sent his impi 400 kilometers away to deal with them. Not only did the prose poets hanging about in Ngungu Glovu feel the need to draw together a few choice lines of Zulu or future praise poets to continue singing, but the word about Dingan's raids travelled much further afield, down to the Cape. The Karana and Griqua weren't that far away, between the Vaal and the Orange Rivers, and when they heard about what the Impi had done to the Amandibele, they launched their own raid from the southwest, seizing more of Mzilikatsi's cattle, killing more warriors, 
launching waves of raids through June and August. The Amma and Debele had sown carnage for more than a decade and were now reaping their whirlwind. The Mzilikasi had attacked the Sutu and Tswana peoples who were minding their own business before these Zululand invaders swept into their villages in the early 1820s. Now he was to be handed defeat after defeat. And the next one was imminent, and for the Amma and Debele on the Haarfeld, it was terminal. Meanwhile, at Blesbach near Tabanchu, the Voortrekkers had elected Piet Ratif as the new governor and commandant general of the new Volksraad in April 1837. Portgieter had been replaced by Ratif, but he had no intention of relinquishing his power. This is where the almost reverend Erasmus Smit enters our story once more. He met with Ratif, who told him that next Sunday he would be formally inducted as the custodian of the Voortrekkers' spiritual needs. He will become a full Dumini. It would take place, said Ratif, after Smith's sermon. So, on the Sunday, Smith duly delivered his sermon, then waited for the commander to make the announcement. Instead, and to his horror, members of the folk stood up and shouted objections to his appointment. The humiliation complete, Ratif cancelled the inauguration, and poor Meneer Smith retired to his wagon to quaff a few brandies, no doubt. Shattered and disappointed, he was visited by Ratif that night, who said they would eventually have to announce him as Dumini because the Voortrekkers were still relying on the Wesleyan missionaries and the American missionaries, including Reverend Daniel Lindley, for their marriages, their baptisms, their funerals. Reverend James Archbell of the Wesleyans was in quite a position. He'd left the Cape to tend to the needs of the Tswana, the Griqua, the Baralong, and here he was officiating at Boer functions. Smith enjoyed the support of Maritz and Ratif, but Potgieter would have nothing to do with him. The chasm between the two Voortrekker camps was widening. Naturally, Smith hated Archbell, who was not Dutch nor a Boer, and became increasingly paranoid about the Wesleyan, believing he was running a smear campaign, and referred to Archbell as a snake in the grass. Then Piet Ratif hit on a solution. Smith would be ordained as a priest in the Dutch Reformed Church and then sent to look after the Voortrekkers of Port Natal instead. In June, as Dingaan's MP marched off to attack Mzilikatsi, a bell sounded to summon the Voortrekkers to Petritif's tent, where he'd be sworn in as governor of the folk. There were fewer folk present there than should have been because about 100 of Portgieter's followers, including Portgieter himself, boycotted the function. A proud... Almost the Dumini Smith led the prayer as 140 members crowded around the tent. Gerrit Maritz retained his judicial powers and was also announced President of the Council of Policy. This was the highest administrative body which was later to become known in the Republic of Natal as the Volksrat. The nine clauses of the Constitution of Binbach were framed and adopted, and Smith swore Ratif in as the new governor of what were called the United Lagers. As the backbiting and general dislocation between Maritz and Potkita bubbled away, they eyed Mzilikati. Hearing about the Zulu raid, they realized the Amandabeli were ripe for the final blow. First, however, the Voortrekkers needed to resolve a dispute which revolved around direction, literally. Where were they supposed to head next? Down to the Groenland van Natal, as some wanted, including Retief, or northeastly, following the rivers along the Haarfeld? 
It was impossible to arrive at a consensus about the name of their proposed state because they didn't know where they were going. Some suggested East Africa or New Eden, and the Reverend Smith now announced it could be called the Free Province of New Holland in South East Africa. The idea was received favorably, then immediately forgotten. They weren't representing Holland anymore, were they? Then, because Smith was a bit of a beginner at the swearing-in of presidents thing, he realized that he had left out the all-important words, the creed of the Dutch Reformed Church, when he'd officiated at Retief's installation I mentioned a moment earlier. So they had another swearing-in ceremony on the 11th of June, 1837, where Retief was once more announced as the governor of the United Lagers. The disagreements continued. Henrik Portgieter polled folk members, warning them they should avoid Natal, saying, where you have the sea, you have the English. Which was quite true. And speaking of the English, they were indeed beginning to view Port Natal with more interest. While Cape Town and Port Elizabeth remained far more important, the hunter-traders at Port Natal nagged the governor to consider annexing Natal as a new colony. Their overriding motives were economic. They traded hides and furs, ivory, tallow, horns and plant oil, and these folks were linked directly to the British financiers who put up the money for their exploration and their exploits. These hunter-traders were the first external group or class of individuals to respond to economic opportunities and the political risks that lay in exploiting the natural wealth of Natal and Zilliland. Most of the hunter-traders, like Henry Francis Finn, had gone so far as to marry into Zulu society. So valuable was this opportunity. These traders had also expanded the use of maize in Natal, the all-important pup. Maligned as they are, it was Finn who brought the first maize seed and handed these over to his chief Induna, Jakula, who introduced this crop to his kraal. By 1835, the majority of the kraals in Port Natal were growing mealies, and once more, they were supplying the needs of the region when it came to basic carbohydrates. It took less than 11 years for an agricultural revolution to take place in Natal, and it impacted the northern Nguni people immediately. Some of the refugees of the wars taking place north of the port had planted this crop, and they began to build a peasant class right there under the noses of the traditional leaders. The men living alongside these hunters and traders, the Zulu men, were now also trained to use muskets, and joined the hunters in shooting down herds of elephant and the rhino. The traders moved around a lot under the close scrutiny of Dingaan's councillors, who kept him abreast of the latest settler machinations. Like Shaka, Dingaan administered trade as an exclusive prerogative, and distributed blankets and cloth, beads and utensils, and metal ornaments to the royal women of the Izugodlo, along with favourite retainers and members of the Zulu ruling class. European goods became associated with exclusivity and were regarded as a further extension of the magnification of royal authority. Dingan, like Shaka before him, had controlled the majority of the cattle in the kingdom and had the means to entice the traders to bring their wares to him exclusively. Like with other areas of southern Africa, the growing colonial economy needed cattle and oxen for meat and hide, milk and most importantly, for draft animals used in cultivation and transport. The oxen were the engines, the fodder, the petrol or the diesel. These hunter-traders of Port Natal and the merchants who began to arrive by 1834 
worked together in a rewarding enterprise. Both cultivated their relationships with the Zulu headman. Stores began to spring up, although early days. These stores outfitted the hunter with imported wares and the hunter trader profit margins went over 75%. The ruthless activities of these hunter traders had a catastrophic effect on the region's fauna. One man, John Dunn alone, accounted for hundreds of elephants during his career as a hunter. He shot over a thousand rhino and about the same number of hippo. So, if you can imagine a region stretching from Delagoa Bay all the way to the Transkai of today, that would have felt the effect of both the hunter traders and the Zulu. In the period between 1830 and 1838, the Zulu were the most important Nguni group for Delagoa Bay officials as well. During this time, there were reported to be a few hundred Zulu warriors fighting near Delagoa Bay, along with their auxiliaries furnished by local chiefs. These were people who spoke the language we know as Zulu, but would have called themselves by their clan names, the Isibongi. They didn't take sides in local disputes permanently, they came and went. For instance, in 1831, Dingan had allowed chiefs he controlled in the far north to fight with the Portuguese administrator called Ribeiro against the Matola people. Two years later, 1833, Dingan switched sides, or at least the Nguni speakers near Delegoa Bay switched sides, fighting with Matola against Ribeiro. We know that Ribeiro had paid tribute to Dingan in 1832 to avoid the small settlement coming under attack, but their relationship appears to have broken down. Then, because mercenaries do these kind of things, a year later the Zulu joined the Portuguese administrators again, fighting Matola. The Zulu had been expanding north until at least 1835, and it's thought that the king of the Gaza Nguni, or the Shangan, Manukuza Shangana, left the Limpopo area between 1836 and 1838 to escape Zulu attacks. Dingan switched sides again, working with the chief Matola and a second chief called Maputo, who lived near Delagoa Bay, and set fire to kraals alongside the port and tried to kill Ribeiro. Ribeiro was eventually captured and executed by Nguni-speaking men, who historians say were linked to Dingan. A Portuguese man known as Nobre then took over administration duties at Delegoa Bay after these attacks and exchanged embassies with Dingan. It would take up to 35 days or more for an answer to come from Dingan after messages were dispatched and vice versa. Then in 1835, Portugal sent a new administrator called Dario Rodrigues de Vasconcelos to Delegoa Bay and Dingan promptly demanded he pay a tribute or suffer raids. Davash Conchelos sent a note back apologizing and explaining that Portugal was now being racked by civil war and tributes were hard to come by. Dingon was reportedly upset and upped his demand for cattle by a factor of five, but the reality was he was finding it difficult to control the Nguni speakers of this region and by 1836 his warriors were no longer as important here because the Boers and the Swazi further south had attracted the Zulu king's attention. He didn't have time to try and hold on to the northern shores of Delagoa Bay, although Zulu-linked chiefs would rule the southern shores until Quechuayo's time in the 1870s. Still, in 1836, the Zulu really did hold sway in one way or another over quite a chunk of southeastern Africa, stretching along that warm coast of modern-day KZN all the way through Cozy Bay into Punta de Oro and Dumo further inland to Goba and Katembe. 
These were all part of the Zulu kingdom. However, the ties were loose, fraying, and at times they fractured. So after this episode, stitching together the Ama and Debele, the British hunter traders, the Zulu, and the Portuguese, it's time to stop. Next, we return to the Cape where the English are grappling with a whole host of problems once again and the Amakosa are chafing under local authority. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if they have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.